WBEV. Welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us. It's Wednesday, November 8th, and today we're talking about renewable energy, climate change, and sports. I know, I know, you've heard it all before, but here at Vermont Viewpoint, we do it differently. Today on the program, DEV's own Brady Farkas, knower of all things sports in Vermont and New England, a man of many opinions about the Patriots, the World Series, UVM, high school sports, and everything else under the sports sun. We'll take you on a tour of the sports scene with Brady so you don't ever have to watch ESPN Sports Center again or listen to other forms of talk radio ever again. And first, we're going to tackle energy. We're going to get an update on Vermont's role in the climate change debate, heat pumps, firewood, carbon pollution, all of it, with the leader of the Energy Action Network, a group that seeks to cut Vermont's carbon pollution and move us to an electric future. Jared Duval, the Executive Director of Energy Action Network, joins us in a couple of minutes. As always, we welcome your calls. The number to call is 802-244-1777, and the email is vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. We welcome your calls. And we will try to fit them in as they come through. That's all coming up today on Vermont Viewpoint. But first, there was there were some elections yesterday, and we are looking for clues as to what it means for all of us. These local elections come on the heels of a blockbuster New York Times poll that has Donald Trump ahead of Joe Biden in several key swing states like Michigan that could tip the election in Trump's favor. Yes. We are a year away. Yes, everything can change. But the New York Times poll was a huge head-scratcher for me and a wake-up call to the Biden team and Democrats everywhere. How could a guy under indictment in several federal and local criminal cases, 91 counts to be exact, not to mention being found liable for sexually assaulting a woman and now battling to save his company in open court against the attorney general of New York State, how can that guy be ahead of Joe Biden? I don't have an answer for that today, but we will have answers. I'm, I'm shooting for a show on Wednesday to explore all this, Wednesday of next week, to explore all this, because uh, it, it really is a head-scratcher. Um, we'll have experts on the show to explain all this, uh, in, uh, I hope, on Wednesday. Um, but for today, to make it even more of a head-scratcher, uh, while Biden is losing in the polls, Democrats won decisive victories in major races across the country last night, uh, overcoming a downward poll of an unpopular Biden, lingering inflation, and growing global unrest. They did it, according to all the Monday morning quarterbacking, uh, by relying on driving the issue of abortion rights the issue that has emerged as the failsafe since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. The governor, the Democratic governor of the red state, Kentucky, where Biden was trounced by Donald Trump, uh, won a second term. His name is Andy Bashir, and he repeatedly criticized his Republican opponent for initially backing a state abortion ban that contains no exceptions for rape or incest. Um, so Andy Bashir wins a decisive victory in Kentucky of all places. 
I think that's a testament to Bashir and the way he ran his campaign. Uh, people seem to like him. And uh, take a look at him. Uh, he may be a national figure going forward. In Virginia, Democrats won control of both chambers in their legislature, despite there being a Republican governor. Uh, and that was after an avalanche of advertising focused on the abortion issue. So Glenn Youngkin, the Republican governor of Virginia, was not enough to, despite working very hard on these races, was not enough to uh, prevent the entire legislature from going Democratic. In Pennsylvania, Democrats won a seat on the state Supreme Court. That's a that's a place, oddly for us Vermonters, where Supreme Court justices run in elections. Um, and there were a flurry of abortion-related ads in that race in, as well. And here's the biggie. On the first anniversary of a reproductive rights um, uh, constitutional amendment passing in Vermont, in Ohio, a ballot measure establishing a right to abortion in the Constitution won by a double-digit margin. A striking development uh, in support of abortion rights in a conservative state that Trump won twice by convincing margins. So the results amounted to a resounding victory across the across these states, Virginia, Kentucky, and uh, Ohio for abortion rights, proving that the issue can energize a broad coalition of Democrats, independents, and even some moderate Republicans. And I hasten to add young people. As the country heads into the 2024 presidential election, the Republican Party continues to search for an answer to a topic that has vexed them since the fall of Roe. This, according to David Leonhardt in The New York Times. Uh, now, Democrats, of course, face a daunting question of their own, according to Leonhardt's excellent report this morning. In a year when President Biden's record, personal reputation and perceptions of his fitness to serve will be inescapable, i.e. Biden's age, uh, will the abortion issue still pack enough of an electoral punch to overcome Biden's weaknesses? We need to get into Biden's weaknesses as well. Uh, I mentioned the New York Times poll. It, uh, Biden, you know, the economy is improving. Uh, he is, gets credit from all over the world for his handling of the Ukraine issue. Um, but his age is an issue that is dragging him down. And uh, we're going to get into that in, in a future show. Uh, this New York Times poll was a real wake-up call for the White House uh, and Democrats everywhere. And there's going to be – and the, the Israeli-Hamas uh, war is um, – I, I watched a demonstration in Washington, D.C. Uh, this past weekend where 30,000 people, mostly young people, turned out to demonstrate uh, against uh, Israel's counteroffensive against Hamas. And, um, you know, we were riding the subway and watching these people, mostly young. Uh, they, they have little patience with what I call the post-World War II um, uh, international order that the United States created uh, after World War II, including the establishment of the country of Israel. 
uh, and giving them their own state. We were heavily involved in that. Uh, President Harry Truman played a major role. And these demonstrators today, uh, they don't have much patience with that. And they, uh, it's interesting to hear Joe Biden called genocide Joe for supporting Israel was uh, was something I had never heard before. And young people under the age of 35 are going to be a, whether it's abortion, whether it's Israel, um, whether they, whether or not they vote for Joe Biden is a major issue that's coming up. And we'll talk about it on a future show. With that, we're going to take our first break and we're going to come back with Jared Duvall of the Energy Action Network to talk about climate and Vermont's role in the climate debate. Vermont is not meeting its climate obligations to itself, the Northeast, and the rest of the world, according to a new report by the Energy Action Network, a Montpelier-based nonprofit. The report is filled with numbers and goals and policy recommendations enough to make you dizzy. So I wanted to spend some time with the leader of the organization to better understand what it all means. Jared Duval is the executive director of the Energy Action Network, which conducts energy and climate research and analysis for Vermont, most notably via their annual progress report for Vermont on energy, emissions, equity, and the economy. Jared also serves on the Vermont Climate Council and lives in Montpelier. Jared, welcome to the show. Good morning. Glad to be with you, Kevin. Thanks for having me. So, Jared, let's start off. Can you give us the headline on your recent report on climate responsibility? And then we'll get into what it all means. But what's what's the thrust of the report? Yeah, there's really two main takeaways. Number one is that Vermont is not meeting our climate responsibility, and in so do, in not doing that, we are also missing economic opportunity, an opportunity to save Vermonters' money and strengthen the Vermont economy. Um, the, the kind of way that we approach this report is really looking at and working to understand the solutions to what we really see as twin challenges, the climate crisis and the affordability crisis. And the reality is that fossil fuels are at the root of both of those problems. And so that when we do our part to meet our climate responsibility um, by getting moving away from fossil fuels towards more efficient and cleaner sources of energy, it not only helps meet our moral and legal obligation uh, to do our part in responding to the climate challenge, it is also a way to save Vermonters money and reinvest uh, and keep our energy dollars more local here in Vermont. Okay, so let's take on the moral and, and legal obligation first. Um, now, some would argue that Vermont is too small, too poor, and and doesn't produce the kind of carbon emissions that make it worthwhile trying to reduce them when you look at India, China, and and ourselves as a country, uh, and that we should focus on flood resilience and other things that make us more secure. What do you make of that argument? A couple of things there. I mean, the the first is that every single state, every single country in the world could make the argument that they alone cannot uh, solve the climate challenge. 
And that's, right. that's true. It's the, the fundamental nature of it is it's a collective action problem. And so when it comes to challenges like this, um, it means we all have to do our part. And so, you know, Vermont committed to doing that in 2020 with the passage of the Global Warming Solutions Act. It didn't say that Vermont should take responsibility for the climate pollution anywhere else. It just said we should, in Vermont, be responsible for the climate pollution we produce here and reduce that in line with the scientific targets and the commitment that the United States made um, as, as a whole as part of the Paris Agreement. And what that is, is to reduce emissions uh, 26% below 2005 levels by 2025. And, you know, that's, that's actually, and that's just to avoid the, the worst predicted consequences of a destabilized climate um, working to, to keep warming below 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit of warming. And we're already seeing, not even having approached that level, the, the significant impacts of inaction when it comes to exactly what you were just talking about, um, disasters that I think can no longer accurately be termed natural disasters. They're really fossil fuel disasters and bear the imprint of, of the human impact of our, of our climate pollution. You know, t 10, uh, sorry, two one in a hundred year floods in the span of, you know, about 12 years in, in, in Vermont, um, that, that is, you know, that is not the type of, um, effects that we would see were it not for uh, the impacts of, of climate pollution. But the other thing you, you spoke about is um, our responsibility to adapt and become more resilient in the face of that changing climate. And I um, totally agree. Where I get worried is where um, that choice between investing and acting on adaptation and resilience um, sometimes, unfortunately, gets uh, presented in contrast to a responsibility to work to reduce our climate pollution. I don't see those as either or choices. I think that they are both and choices. And I think the, the hard reality is that there's no uh, true durable path to uh, a resilient future without getting at the root of the problem and doing our part to reduce pollution at the same time. So to me, uh, the, the responsibility to reduce pollution, the responsibility to become more resilient in the face of these fossil fuel disasters, um, those are both and responsibilities, not either or. Okay, now the financial part of this. Um, you say that the report says that if we stay with fossil fuels, uh, we're sending our energy dollars out of state to a faceless corporation that doesn't care about Vermont, as opposed to if we make this energy transition, we're keeping our dollars in state. Can you give us more detail about that? Yeah. So in 2022, uh, collectively, uh, the amount of money that Vermont was spent in Vermont on fossil fuels was about $2.6 billion. And 100% of that fossil fuel was imported. We don't produce any of it here in Vermont. And fossil fuels are a global commodity, and they are subject to uh, very high costs and uh, a lot of price volatility. Um, if you compare over time, um, the, the prices of fossil fuels to alternatives like electricity or on the heating side, things like local uh, sustainable wood heating, um, 
the fossil fuel prices are on average much higher and, and have much more volatility. Um, but the other thing is that because it's, a, it's an imported commodity, um, the vast majority of the dollars that we spend on them, uh, about $2 billion out of the $2.6 billion uh, that was spent in 2022, drains out of the state economy. It's going back to the producers of and refiners of that fossil fuel, which, you know, are in Texas or, um, you know, in some global market. That equation of three quarters of every energy dollar we spend leaving the state when spent on fossil fuels gets turned around, gets flipped on its head when instead we spend our energy dollars on electricity, say, for instance, to charge an electric vehicle or to um, heat with heat pumps or heat, heat pump water heaters. About 75 cents of every dollar stays and recirculates in the Vermont economy uh, when we use electricity. And, and the reason for that is that most of the cost of electricity um, involves local labor. It involves line workers and tree trimmers and customer service operations um, and some clean power purchases as well. So that is an opportunity to um, really shift the, the flow of our energy dollars from out of state to these you know, multinational uh, corporations and, and many countries that are opposed to democratic values and human rights and instead keep more of those dollars local, reinvesting in the Vermont economy and supporting the, the jobs of our neighbors right here in Vermont. Jared, what, uh, okay, so you issue this report, uh, you make these statements and policy recommendations. I guess my question then is, then what? Uh, do you take it to the legislature and urge them to uh, take action? What, what, you've got a legislative session coming up. What happens next with regard to this report in the legislature if you get your way? Yeah, so... The annual progress report for Vermont is um, our attempt to make sure that Vermont's energy and climate conversation is grounded in the latest available and highest quality uh, data and analysis that we have. It is a it, um, there actually aren't policy recommendations in the report. It is just the facts, please. Where do we stand in terms of our energy use, in terms of emissions? How does that compare with the uh, commitments the state has made. How does it compare to our neighbors? It is it is a report to get the information on the table to make sure that we're having um, informed, fact based, evidence based energy and climate conversations in Vermont. Um, and so, you know, what hopefully that is informing policy discussions that happen. But Energy Action Network, as an organization, doesn't um, take positions on public policy. We don't uh, lobby for or against certain bills. Um, any bills before the legislature or um, proceedings before the Public Utility Commission. We are um, an informational resource um, that, that works to track uh, uh, information and provide research and analysis. Um, you know, a lot of other people will, will draw on this information and draw their own conclusions, but um, we, we try to, um, you know, have a pretty clear distinction between those, those two ro roles. And that Energy Action Network, we're on the uh, research and analysis side, not on the uh, lobbying or, or public policy side. Um, before we uh, have to take our first break, 
I want to. I, I did not plan this question, so I'm I'm hitting you from out of left field. But <laughs> I, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by the McNeil generating plant um, in Burlington and the, the fact that it burns wood and um, that and there's a discussion going on between in, within your community about yeah uh, what to do with that plant, and uh, I'm fascinated by it because it. Some people think of it as a as part of a sustainable energy uh, solution uh, that can generate electricity for the city, and others see it as a as a carbon polluter that needs to be shut down. Does does EAN have a position on that or not? This is a good example of the the breadth and diversity of our network. So when when I mentioned that EAN is a nonprofit that does research and analysis, we do that on behalf of the state of Vermont as a whole, but also um, on behalf of this very broad and diverse network of over 200 member nonprofit organizations, businesses, public agencies. Um, and across our network, we have people who are on different sides of that issue. We have some folks who yeah. are, are for capturing the, the steam heat from McNeil and using that to um, uh, heat the UVM hospital. Um, uh, there are others um, who are opposed to that. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting situation because I think that there are a lot of people in Vermont who, who agree on a long-term goal about meeting our energy and climate commitments. But when we get to the, 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 the near-term questions of, of how do we do that, I think we, we often run into um, differences of opinion and, and real kind of uh, trade-offs. To me, the way that I always think about these specific questions um, about an energy choice is compared compared to what? Um, I think that yeah. um, it's really important to say what is the alternative and how does that, that stack up? Um, and there's pros and cons on both sides, and I'm happy to get into it. But the short answer is EAN as an organization uh, does not have um, a position on, on the McNeil uh, question and that we have different viewpoints across our network on it. Jared, uh, before, as, as during the break, I, I was thinking about this. You know, I used to be, the audience won't know this, but I was the environmental reporter for the Burlington Free Press. And I remember writing about, in 1991, about climate change um, and Jim Hansen at the Goddard Space Flight mm-hmm. Center at NASA sounding the alarm. And I know Hansen has just, uh, there's a new report out that he is a co-author of, but and I ha- which I have not read. However, I, I interviewed Hansen in 1991. Um, we've been at this for a long time. Um, and it strikes me that it, it it sort of never changes that we continue to fight the same old sort of bipolar fight of uh, we're not doing enough. We need to reduce climate pollution and save money in state. And the other side of this debate um, says it's too expensive. Liberals are raising our taxes and we can't afford it. And uh, fossil fuels are just fine my truck, my uh, my energy, my oil truck or a gas truck pulls up to my car, fills up my, uh, my house, fills up my tank, and I'm just fine. And what's changed between '91 and now? Are you optimistic about the progress that's been made, or pessimistic? 
I mean, I think that one of the things that's changed is the 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 science has gotten so much more stark and the warnings um, so much more sobering. What what in the 1980s and 90s was um, you know really a an, an emerging and uh, problem and a potential crisis has has become a, a very real and present crisis. I mean, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report earlier this year um, saying that we have a rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all. And, you know, one, I think it is worrying that, um, you know, we have not been heeding um, the, the, the warnings of uh, the scientific community, and therefore the challenge gets greater and the window of time that we have to respond to avoid the worst consequences gets shorter and shorter. Um, I do think that um, more and more people understand the challenge. Um, we're seeing um, a lot of um, action at the state level um, to do things that w were not happening um, 10 or 20 years ago in terms of uh, real commitments, legal obligations, mechanisms to uh, reduce climate pollution uh, while saving uh, folks money. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do think that, you know, that that line uh, is sobering and should stay with us, uh, a rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all. Uh, that came from the chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, who, in, in summarizing their report, said, we are walking when we should be sprinting. And, you know, to me, that isn't a message for some kind of, you know, faceless, nameless global public. It is to all of us to do what we can where we can. And that includes Vermont. Um, you know, we in Vermont produce about 14 tons of climate pollution per person. That is the second highest amount of climate pollution per person in New England. Only New Hampshire uh, is higher. Um, and if you look at the entire Northeast, uh, Vermont produces the third highest uh, amount of climate pollution per person behind Pennsylvania and, and New Hampshire. So um, we have a part to do as well. We actually have an outsized responsibility because we're producing more pollution um, relative to our population uh, than, than most other places in, in the region. And again, uh, doing so is not just about following the science and, and meeting our responsibility. It's also about meeting this twin challenge of an affordability crisis and uh, moving to reduce people's energy bills and um, save, save folks money, build a more equitable economy and, and one that strengthens Vermont econ Vermont's economy rather than spending or sending $2 billion a year uh, out of state to fossil fuel companies. So, okay, let's take me as a guinea pig. Um, I bought an electric car, a Chevy Bolt, which I charge at home and uh, frantically, when I have to drive to Burlington and back, uh, frantically search for a fast charger uh, downtown. There are two, by the way, um, uh, one at uh, Cody Chevrolet and the other one at the Vermont State Employees Credit Union. Um, and I still yeah. heat with my wood stove as a supplement to my uh, natural get my propane uh, heating. I, I try to heat 100% with my wood stove in my small house. 
Um, how am I doing? <laughs> well, you have addressed the, the two most important things that you can do. The, the, on average, uh, the average Vermonter, um, the, the two largest sources of climate pollution are how we get around and how we heat our homes and buildings. And so, you know, an electric vehicle uh, over its lifetime produces about a fifth, a fifth of the uh, climate pollution that a, that a comparable gas vehicle does. And so if, if you are driving electric, um, you are producing far uh, less uh, climate pollution than somebody than those who drive gas vehicles. And you're also, uh, importantly, likely saving money because, you know, last I looked, I think the average price per gallon in Vermont of gasoline is about $3.60 a gallon. Um, you know, we have many utilities in Vermont. The one that most Vermonters have is Green Mountain Power, which is, um, you know, the equivalent of paying about a dollar a gallon to charge your vehicle. Um, and EVs have incentives, um, federal, state utility incentives that bring the upfront cost, the purchase price down below that uh, many times of a comparable gas vehicle. And then over the life of the vehicle have lower uh, uh, maintenance costs. So, you know, that that is a major opportunity for a win-win um, to reduce pollution and reduce costs. And there, you know, there are not enough yet, but there are increasingly used vehicle options. There are incentives for used EVs. You know, most Vermonters are buying used vehicles. About two-thirds of Vermonters buy used, uh, only about a third buy new. There are many new used vehicle options um, in, in Vermont and, um, and, and fewer on the used side, but um, hope, hopefully more to make sure that um, everybody who has to have a vehicle is able to uh, move towards electric, both for the sake of the climate and for the sake of our budgets. And on the heating side, um, you know, two of the most carbon intensive and most expensive ways to heat a home are with fuel oil or propane. And so there are many options for how we can reduce that pollution and reduce those costs. Uh, weatherization is, is so important. Uh, often that is the best first step. Uh, folks who are, have lower incomes can get free weatherization through the weatherization assistance program. Um, and uh, other Vermonters, middle and um, upper income Vermonters can uh, get incentives for weatherization uh, as well, you know, in decreasing cost, decreasing pollution, increasing comfort. That is such a win-win uh, decision. And then in terms of how we heat our space and how we heat our water, um, the, the advances in heat pump technology and heat pump water heaters and in advanced wood heating systems, whether it's more efficient wood stoves or pellet stoves or pellet boilers uh, or furnaces that are automated, um, there are many options, all with associated state and federal incentives that can, um, you know, help each of us do our part to reduce climate pollution and also save money in the process, which is uh, a really important thing in, in this economy. Now, I have friends uh, who say that the electric car love affair is not going to solve the problem. Uh, it has its own problems, i.e., you know, the mining of the cobalt and the minerals necessary to make these batteries uh, is a whole other additional problem. Um, and 
and that we need to make far more wholesale changes uh, to survive climate change to our food systems, to our very economic systems, and that just going out and buying an electric vehicle and going out and getting a heat pump is nowhere near enough to forestall the catastrophe that's ahead. What do you make of that argument? Yeah, I think that there are no silver bullet solutions when it comes to uh, the climate challenge and the energy transition. Um, I think that we need to be able to do multiple things at once. (laughs) Again, a both and conversation rather than an either or conversation. Um, And I think that as we do that, it's really important, as you say, to be as fully transparent and and honest and critical about not just the the positives, but also the 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 cons and the the risks associated with with different choices. I will just say that when it comes to electric vehicles and and mining, the amount of mining that goes into our fossil fuel economy um, makes the amount of mining that goes towards batteries uh, look vanishingly small. That is not to say because we should um, work for um, you know, uh, socially and environmentally responsible um, ethical ethical supply chains when it comes to um, the components of battery manufacturing and the ability to to recycle them and um, you know the conditions of of workers who are producing them. Um, that was a, a great outcome of uh, the recent negotiations uh, with the United the United Auto Workers with the Big Three is uh, securing commitments around, um, you know, union protections, union wages, union benefits for uh, battery manufacturing in the U.S. as we bring much more of that um, in-country and and rely less on um, global supply chains for some of those components. Um, But I think all of those are important questions. I would, again, just, um, you know, I come back to this question of of compared to what, um, and I don't think we have the luxury or the time to wait for perfect solutions that, that don't exist. Um, and, you know, um, electric vehicles in terms of uh, their impact on the climate uh, may not be perfect, um, but they are uh, far, far better. Again, produce a fifth of the uh, greenhouse gas pollution over their lifetime of, of a gas vehicle. Um, so that is, that is a, not the whole solution, but a major part of the solution. And one that importantly in this economy um, can help save people money over time. You know, the equivalent of paying a dollar a gallon rather than 360 a gallon lower maintenance costs and taking advantage of these state and federal and utility incentives that bring down the upfront purchase cost of a new or used uh, vehicle. Jared, in the, in the last few minutes that we have left, um, what we're really talking about is a, is a, a change, a massive transformational change to our economy. Uh, both the national economy and the world economy. We're trying to change uh, a post-World War II fossil fuel-based economy to a sustainable, more sustainable electric-based economy uh, in time to save ourselves. That's really what we're doing here. Um, can we do this? I, I think so, and I think we have no choice but but to try because the alternative of um, living in a world in full climate destabilization uh, is, is too difficult to, to, 
to to imagine and to uh, let our kids uh, and ourselves live in. <laughs> I mean, when we come back to if, if we just take a broad view of the sweep of human history, um, you know, you look at uh, the the advent of agriculture uh, in human civilizations about 10,000 years ago. That has been made possible in the growth of uh, human societies and the, the kind of institutions and, um, you know, social um, foundations that we take for granted have developed over the last 10,000 years uh, on a foundation of a relatively stable climate uh, that, that allows for, um, you know, agriculture, that allows for relatively um, kind of, uh, you know, a, a stable climate that is somewhat predictable. Of course, there were always natural disasters, but um, we have loaded the dice so much with climate pollution in our atmosphere uh, to the degree where, you know, we're seeing uh, carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere. The last time that they were this high, you know, sea levels were were far, far higher, over 20 feet higher and you just think about our population centers um, around the world. Most of them are coastal. You think about our economies, our communities, how dependent they are on a relatively stable climate. This is not something that we want to look back on 10 or 20 years from now and say, we, we wish we had done more. We wish we had listened to the warnings because, you know, I think that if, if a sober reading of the science um, makes it seem like um, what uh, happened this summer will become a new normal if, if we don't quickly change course and do our part uh, here in Vermont and everywhere else to reduce pollution on the, at the time and scale um, that, that the scientific community is pointing to. Um, so for folks who want to, you know, um, learn more about this, you know, we put Vermont's emissions in context with every other state in the region. We look at these global commitments, where we stand in progress towards them, and then dig into these very specific uh, energy choices that, you know, that have to be made at the state policy level and also kind of at the individual and household level. And all of that information is available in our just released annual progress report uh, for Vermont on um, emissions, energy, equity, and the economy. And that is the report is available for anybody who wants to dig in further at our website, which is eanvt.org. Um, and our hope, again, is that this provides a, a basis of um, information so that we can have a fact-based and evidence-based conversation on both our responsibility to, to act here in Vermont and the opportunity in doing so in terms of reducing energy costs and strengthening uh, our, our economy as we make the, the necessary shift that you just spoke of away from um, a fossil fuel economy that is not just highly polluting and has health consequences uh, for our people, um, but is also one that is highly inequitable um, and is costing people way too much for the basic necessities of being able to get around and stay warm. And so I, I think that as big as this challenge is, the opportunity before us to do two things simultaneously, to uh, reduce pollution, to do our part towards um, the scientific necessity 
uh, towards the global com- commitment and and do so while relocalizing um, our energy use um, and using um, clean energy and clean electricity uh, to meet those needs to to get around and stay warm and otherwise that is a massive opportunity to um, build a more equitable energy economy and save Vermonters money as we are doing our part to meet that moral responsibility and legal obligation uh, to to reduce pollution as well. Last question before we have to go. Do you ever get, I I ask this question of Bill McKibben and and everybody in your field all the time, and I'm not sure I ask it right, but there's a sort of climate change rabbit hole that you can go down. And I wonder whether analysts, experts, and activists like you ever get depressed over the, the, the immensity of the task in front of us. Uh, or do you maintain an optimistic and idealistic outlook uh, and just keep working? Does it ever get you down? Yeah, I mean, it definitely does. I think anybody who takes a rational view of what the science says, it, it leads to incredibly uh, difficult um, thoughts in, in imaginings of a future uh, for the people that we love the most. I mean, you know, um, I'm a parent, and even folks who aren't parents who know, have young people in their lives, we, we, you know, I think it is the most natural and appropriate thing to do to worry about the future that we are are leaving um, our kids and that we are going to live. This is not a far away thing. We, we saw it this summer. We'll continue seeing it. Um, but, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from the author, Rebecca Solnit, and she says that, you know, it's OK to, to feel despair as an emotion, but but not to accept it as an analysis, because it if we do that, it um, leads to inaction. And so, you know, I draw inspiration from uh, Vermont history. You know, um, I'm, I'm um, you know, I'm part of the ninth generation of my family here in Vermont. And when I get down, I, I think about our ancestors and people in Vermont who, when things were really difficult, whether it was during the revolution or the Civil War, or we were trying to... I got to go. Um, you know, yeah. So we, we can do this um, and we just got to do our part and one foot in front of the other. Thank you, Jared. Jared Duval, Energy Action Network. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. 